Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Michelle Nolden, an actor you might know from Saving Hope, Nikita, Republic of Doyle, October Faction, and currently CBC's Heartland. She's also the artistic director of the Lake Shorts International Short Film Festival, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary a year late this fall, thanks to COVID, with a special Grand River Shorts edition November 12th at the Dominion Telegraph Center in Paris, Ontario. There's some good stuff playing there, and you should check it out if you're in the area. Michelle chose Secrets and Lies, Mike Lee's 1996 Palme d'Or winner about the relationship between two very different London women. Cynthia, an anxious factory worker played by Brenda Bleden, and Hortense, an optometrist who discovers after the death of her adoptive parents that Cynthia is her birth mother. Hortense contacts Cynthia and asks her to meet, and the build-up to that meeting, and its repercussions, will echo through both of their lives. Lee's film is much more complex than that, of course. And it always is. This is someone else's movie. I think that I often come back to this film in so many things as an actor and then as a, a new, you know, somebody who's newly writing and directing and all of that stuff. I, I always reference it and, and the movie has always stuck with me. And so I was like secrets and lies. And then I watched it again too. And I was like, Oh my God, it's such a good, <laughs> such a good film. And when I first watched it, I mean, it's what, 20 some odd years old. 25 like, this 25 year, years old. 1996. Oh yeah. So when I first watched it, I mean, I was a young actor. I didn't have kids. I didn't have, so it was more the, the acting and the, the rawness and the freedom of the characters and all of that stuff that really got me and where I wanted to be as an actor and how I wanted to work as an actor. But then when I watched it this time, I mean, I've recently lost both of my parents and I'm a mom of three boys. And to watch it again now with that life experience that, of course, Mike Lee would have had at the time was I just I was kind of blown away by it again, but in a different way. It's always fascinating to me the way that we change, but the movies don't. Right. Like it's telling the same story it always told, but you're just responding to different pieces of it. I, I was exactly the same way. Um, I always feel conflicted about the circumstances of Secrets and Lies because I do think it's Mike Lee's best film. And it is also the film that I interviewed him for. And it was one of the worst interviews of my career. Um, oh, okay. So how so? I'm curious about that. He, well, I know. I, I rarely tell it because it, I don't know. I, it went so badly. He was hostile, like actively hostile uh, to the point where, well, I should point out this was for television. So I was shooting him for global TV. Um, uh, a producer had just asked me to jump in because I'd seen it and really loved it. And I knew his work and should, and would I mind taking this on? I was like, I will talk to Mike Lee. Absolutely. Sure. Let me, let me do this. Right. And he, it turns out he doesn't, he's not a fan of television interviews. At least that's how it was explained to me after the fact. So, you know, why even right. book the press day? But he did them and he was just blunt and hostile and uninterested in engaging. And to the point where towards the end, he was picking his nose to render the footage unusable, which just felt uh, contemptuous of the process, I suppose. Um, so I'm, I was 28 and I, uh, I came out of it convinced that it was me, that I had done something wrong. And I, I was, I brought the footage back and I, I 
gave it to Monty and she watched it and just said, wow, you didn't do anything. You're trying to save it. And I've never seen it. I can't, I can't bear to, uh, to watch the thing. Um, But, and maybe they salvaged it 30 second soundbite. I have no idea to this day. Apparently uh, Ingrid Rendojo who interviewed him for now that day, the same day said he was great. And, you know, that was back when you can get 30 minutes for print and 15 for television. And I've never met him or, or spoken to him since. I'd still like to, just to find out. But it was excruciating. Because based on the film, I would have thought that he would have been extremely generous and and open to process and to all of the things that go along with film, which is all of this other stuff too, right? Talking to people about the film, about process, getting that stuff out there, connecting with, you know, aspiring filmmakers and young actors and journalists. And like, that's just, that's, that's very surprising. Yeah. I mean, maybe he was just having a bad day or maybe the the previous interview had gone badly. I don't, I don't know. I don't do a lot of TV um, anymore. And uh, at the time, I think you were still able to get a decent conversational rhythm going. At least that was my experience when I was doing it with other people. And it right. was just like a brick wall. And yeah, the, the nose picking uh-huh. was something was just like, it felt personal and weird. And yeah. Yeah. That's, I won't pick my nose. I promise. I, well, this isn't going out on video. You're fine. Do whatever. <laughs> uh, but that, yeah, that was, that was like one of the lowest days of my professional life. And I loved the movie, but I never went back to it. Why? Well, that's not true. I have subsequently gone back to it, but for, it took me at least another, I don't know, 15 or 16 years to revisit it. Well, I know what you mean, how it affects people. You know, I've had circumstances where, well, I should, this actor shall remain nameless, but where, you know, I, I saw an actor treat people really, really poorly at TIFF, actually, one of the volunteers. Ooh. And I just was never able to watch him in a movie again <laughs> because I just went, God, like... <laughs> that poor person is volunteering and did not sign up for that shit. <laughs> yeah. It's like going on a date and watching somebody be shitty to a waiter. It's just like, yeah. that's your, that is your character that you're seeing in that moment. That's the real person. It's like, well, yeah. that's not good. Yeah. And I know, you know, we all play have bad days and stuff like that, but yeah, no, I, I, I do know what you mean. Yeah. So I have managed to get past it now with years of, the therapy of watching his other films where he's clearly not the person that I talked to. Right. Again, I can't imagine that if that was who he was, people would be willing to work with him for, you know, six months at a time to develop characters and do the improvisational work that creates his scripts that he seems very collaborative as an artist. It was just one rotten day. And the movie is exquisite. We all have them. Yeah. Yeah. I I would assume. Um, And the movie is exquisite. So, it doesn't matter what my personal experience was with him. I, he made a, this film is tremendous and we should get back to the focus of that, which is just, it's easy to talk about it, even though I have this one personal check mark against it in my, in my soul. Right. <laughs> right. On. But the film is, is wonderful. And yeah. So what's it like to see as a young actor when you're figuring things out and does this give you, were you familiar with his work? at the time? Um, I mean, I, you know, I sort of came into acting late. So, so for me at that time, like kind of, you know, late nineties, early 2000, I was just like a sponge. Like I was just taking whatever I could and seeing as many movies as I could. But I think that, you know, Marianne Jean-Baptiste and Brenda Blessing, like they just blew me away. Right. I was like that, 
I just, that was the, the, that was like, if I could have dream characters, that would be it. But I've always been drawn, I think, to fam to relationships, right? Like character driven kind of stuff, family relationships. Like if I thought about the other movies that I loved, like, like weird ones, like Steel Magnolia or Steel Magnolias or The Lion King or like the movies that I, you know, they're all, they all go back to family relationships, right? Or even mm-hmm. like the celebration. Remember Vinterberg's celebration? Like yeah. or Knives Out or whatever. Like all of those films. I really dig those films, but they're all kind of come back to family. And I have a great family, probably about as functional a family as you can get. So it's really odd that that that's those are the movies that I've drawn that I'm drawn to. But um but I am for whatever reason. And even in in terms of like what I choose to write and create and stuff like that, I find that I think because those are the most important relationships to me in, in my life. And also I feel like when I'm, when I first inhabit a character to me, who they are as like in relationship to their family and their family relationships really helps me kind of define who that character is. Right. Yeah. And these are worst case scenarios for families, right? Where there are, you know, horrible truths coming to light and, and people turning on each other. Knives Out is a perfect example of that. Like, um, yeah. And I do, I love the fact that that script is built entirely on personal betrayals and people who feel betrayed, even if they aren't, and you just see them all revert to their worst selves. Secrets and Lies is about a family that doesn't know they're a family, which yeah. I think is just his work of genius like the masterstroke of of his thing where every one of mike lee's movies almost everyone maybe not peter Lou, are about people who've known each other too long right like they know each other too well they know each other inside and out and they're kind of on some level tired of it but they're all stuck together in whatever relationship they forged for themselves which um, i thought was so brilliant how he did that like you remember when the um when the, the brother is taking the pictures right mm-hmm. and every little snippet of those are people exactly like that, where you could take that story and you could make that, that, that little one minute blip that you saw of that person. And each one of those things were so truthful that it set the tone that this is all of us, like that this story that we're about to see is each one of us and exactly how you say, right. That this, they've known each other too long and just the, the day to day, well, the kitchen sink drama that Mike Lee's sort of famous for, right. Just the, yeah. the living and the, the drudgery of, of having to work through this shit because it's your family and you have to. And, you know, and I think, um, I think that's what makes it so interesting. Yeah. And it's in this case, of course, it's a family that has to completely reconsider what the concept of family is because there's another one they've added. They're in the process of adding someone to, their sphere, but they don't know who she is. And so you get this, I'm I'm jumping around in terms of plot, but yeah, Cynthia is shown over and over again to have absolutely no self-control, no filter. Like she'll say whatever's in her head. And over the course of the movie, we watch her reveal too much to Hortense, talk too much about herself, talk too much about her emotions and all the, all those little moments then build to that, that birthday party where she just blurts it out, <laughs> you, but you know, it's coming, right? Like yeah, you can you see it on Blethen's face and it is yeah. just this sustained tension that comes from watching her and her eyes darting around and she's thinking constantly. It's I've seen performances like that. I have never seen one where the actor is allowed to go so far into almost like 
unlikability in her tics and her squealing and the way she says, sweetheart. And just, yeah, yeah, it's like nails on a chalkboard. And Lee forces us to understand her by the time it finally bursts that we know she can't help it, but we also know it's the thing she most needs to do. And it becomes this just the shattering moment of sympathy that again, I had, I don't think I'd ever seen anyone experiment with that on film before. And when you mentioned well, the celebration, it's so like for me watching, it was so groundbreaking is because he, the time that he allows the actors to have like that scene when they first meet and they sit beside each other, I remember you know, thinking, I mean, why are they sitting beside each other? Nobody sits beside each other. They don't, they don't know each other. And then it's like a wonder, right? This whole long, what is it? Four minutes or something it's like, like eight, that. eight or nine. Eight, like it just goes, it's forever, but it's like, a, it's like its own little small theater piece that particular scene but just the way that it it crests and falls and and the way that the actors are just given the freedom to do that was i just think is so amazing and i actually kind of in the very first um short film that i ever wrote and directed i had a similar kind of you know where they were sitting beside each other for that very reason just to see and i had two fantastic actors which was amazing and and just to allow, to trust that the actors, if you just give them the magical what if and the space and all that stuff, that they're going to fill it in, which I think is what Mike Lee does and certainly what he did in that scene, just to allow them to find it. And I wonder how many takes they yeah. did. Like, did they do five or did they do that one? And they went, okay, we got it, moving on. Like, I would have to, you know, like, I would yeah. love to do that. I mean, as a director, if you get it in the first one and it's a one do you? Do a second one as a safety? What would your instinct be just to make sure? Um, I, I don't know if I would, I, I don't know. I mean, as an actor, I'm always willing to go again, but sometimes you go, well, why are we? Like if we got it, whatever that truth is, like you don't want to go back. If I was unsure that maybe I missed it, mm-hmm. then I would go again. But if I thought that we had it, like if I had that scene and I watched it, I would go, okay, <laughs> we need to do that again. Yeah, well, I mean, especially with how much is played, it's not just the technical stuff that that has to take a lot out of the people playing it. Yeah. I mean, to go through that and you you would just be prepared that it would be a totally different scene the next time that they Mm. did it. Right. Because it really felt to me, I mean, that's when you, when you're playing opposite a really good actor and every take is completely different because, and you're really listening to each other. They were listening in every moment right so i wouldn't be surprised if they had like three completely different takes i would probably say that i would be like i have everything that i need but if you guys want to do another one to play then like let's go for it because this is great yeah it's such a it's the centerpiece of the film and it's not even the most important scene really because of what the tensions are you know because of what's coming but if that was the high point yeah you're right it's self-contained it could have ended the film right there Almost like the just the the explosion of emotion that comes out of Blethen as uh, as Cynthia remembers and someone I remember reading a review at the time which struck me as really bizarre. It was the critics' insistence or the critics' conviction that Hortense had been conceived in a rape that Cynthia is remembering something horrible and that's why she bursts into tears and. I, I, I feel like it's vague enough that it could be either, right? Yeah. I mean, that was my, that was what I had thought. 
Um, oh, really? Yeah, I, that was what my, but but I don't know if that's because I knew that ahead of time mm. or whether I saw, I can't remember what, what I knew about this movie before I saw it. That's also the thing, right? Is how, how much you know about a movie before you, before you actually see it. Yeah. Um, Maybe I read it differently. It just seems to me that Cynthia's, because Hortense is black, Cynthia's in denial about even the possibility that she could be her mother. And then she remembers whatever the encounter was, which I don't know. It seemed, I don't know. Maybe in, in I, that part, I wasn't sure, but it was later when, cause she hadn't told her other daughter about mm-hmm. her father. And so at the very end, when she tells her daughter about her father, but then she can't tell um, Hortense, Hortense about hers, where she just said, that's what made me think that it, it wasn't good, whatever, whatever had gone down. Yeah. But I, I think it's interesting, the whole idea of, of race and watching it again now versus 20 years ago, you know, and I know that Mike Lee was under a lot of um, criticism at the time for kind of ignoring or glossing over the whole idea of race. And, and, and I think that was one of the things that I actually loved about the film was that it didn't play into it. And it was, it was just about relationships between people. So it was there, but, but that wasn't the most important thing. But then I've also, you know, as I'm sort of crawling out from under my own rock of white privilege lately, as we all are in the last while, sort of going, well, maybe I liked that because that made me feel comfortable, right? And because that made me feel okay about not having to think about it. And so it's interesting that that's what, that, that was 20 years ago. And now we are where we are and watching it now under, with this, you know, sort of 2020 lens. Yeah. I think Lee could fool himself into thinking it was just about class because that's his focus and always has been. I mean, he's, he's not racially um, ignorant, I don't think, but I don't think that's his focus. He's like, his affinities are always with the working class characters and and people with money are not to be trusted. And I mean, that's the the split between Morris and and, uh, Cynthia is that he's successful and she just isn't. And so she can't imagine him as having difficulties in his life, which sets up again, Spall's knockout punch uh, at the party at the revelation. And then also Hortense being very coming from a well-off family and and doing really well and going to university and doing all that and how she's like simultaneously proud of her and also knows that the short end of the stick she got because of her. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Hortense is, is presented very quickly as sort of the adoption success story where she got the best possible footing to start. Yeah. And that was something Cynthia couldn't have provided, which is why she gave a, a baby she never saw and why she's sort of been in denial about it ever since. I think it's just, it's, right. it's, and that, that's the thing of, or that's the element of the story that I think allowed it to be successful in the States in a way that most of these films weren't. It just, it's marketable because it is basically just a family story. And there are stories of, adoption and and there were there was a whole wave of american movies about people finding their birth parents right around the same time although most of them were on television they were they were looked down on because they were tv movies and here's a version of that that is inarguably um classier i guess than most of the productions that would have been made about it it's not this isn't a lifetime movie like this is the best possible version of a story like this because it allows for the complexity that most television programs at the time weren't even addressing 
you may be seeing something flawed, right? Which is like one of the great things about about all of Mike Lee's characters. Every person that you see in that film is flawed. And I guess that was, as an actor, that was the thing always, because it was always like, well, what is my character's secret, right? What is their fear? What, is they, what do they think is going to happen to them after they die? What do they, like, because that defines how that character lives their life or how, they, how you step into it, right? And, and mm-hmm. I felt like, especially as a Canadian actor, where sometimes you play leads, but sometimes you're just going in for a day player or whatever, right? That if I'm playing three lawyers in a row, but I change those things up, they're totally different characters, Right. They're totally, totally different things. And I felt like every character that he had in that film had a secret. Yeah. And well, I mean, given the title, they have they're almost required right. to bring it in, right? But but you also get the sense that when they leave, their movie could continue and it would be just as important. Yeah. Which is, I think, why they're like are those and, and not bringing it into uh, well, that's like shorts, right? That's what mm-hmm. I love about short film is that e- you can see a little two minute thing or even like a 30 second short film and it can tell you a whole story. Like all of those little bits that the that we saw of the, the people being photographed or the guy that came in who owned the shop before. He's like his whole, whole movie in there. I was like, why is that guy even in there, right? But he just comes in to bring his own. So they're like all these little short films that kind of come into this larger, larger feature. It's the sense of a bustling life. Um, have you seen Another Year? No. Uh, I think that's twenty. 20- 10 or 2011. It's another Lee film. And it's about a couple um, who entertain their friends. That's all it is. Jim Broadbent plays the... Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I know the film. I haven't seen it, but I know the film. Yeah. And their friends are constantly coming from some misery. One of them is just a raging alcoholic. He's introduced drinking tall cans of lager on the train up to see them. He arrives and he's already drunk. Another one is just this perpetual singleton. She's always having miserable um, relationships and things aren't going well. And there is the quiet sense that any one of these characters could have a feature film about them exclusively, but also that Broadbent and Manville are enjoying their friend's loneliness and despair just a tiny bit and that is so fascinating broadbent's got this little half smile on all the time and he's sort of professorial and always asking people well what do you think is wrong with this and what you know how do you feel about this and i couldn't tell for the first hour whether he was trying to help them and just adopting a sort of cheerful manner or if he's poking them just a little bit more every time for his own pleasure and by the end of the film it doesn't matter it's right. it's Probably equally valid. Yeah. But right. that is just, how do you even get to that point as an actor or a filmmaker where you realize, no, that's what he's doing. He's like, whatever his motivation is, it's going to be opaque to the audience, but we know, and we won't tell you. And you're right. in the same position as everyone he's talking to, because you're constantly trying to suss out the tensions. Uh, Secrets and Lies does the same thing 15 years earlier, but with release, with this just everyone gets it all out by the end. And we're left in, I think, ultimately a hopeful place. Well, that's what I found about it that I thought was, was really, um, really interesting. And I think what made the movie stick with me too, was that it, it ended. And I love my share of dark 
twisted films for sure. Mm. But I love that this film was hopeful and that it ended with kind of the world, the way that I would want it to be, which again, going back to the race um, issues in it, I saw it the way that I want the world to be as opposed to maybe the way that it actually is. Right. (laughs) Which is why I liked that it was sort of glossed over and same with to, to think that, you know, family and good relationships and love trumps all, which is kind of, what the movie was at the end that's what we were left with was that they were gonna they were gonna be sisters now and they're gonna go out and they were gonna be a family and you know however realistic that is but but you realize that it is possible because the characters are so real as you go as you go through and you fall in love with them and you realize that they're flawed and well if if they can if they can trump it then anybody can yeah yeah you have to you have to live with them long enough to understand their motivations and understand what drives them. And then to realize at the end that they just, they want each other. They want to be together. Hortense is only doing this because she needs to find out where she came from and then decides she wants to belong. And Cynthia has this grieving process, right? Which was something that I had never, I didn't understand before, but now being in a position of, of losing my parents all of a sudden knowing how important that would be, right? That if this movie, that if this had come to her when her mom was still alive, would she have, would she have gone down that road, right? And so there's like these major life moments, not being able to have a baby for, you know, for the, the brother and his wife and like these just major kind of milestones that I think Lee has captured in this are, I think that's that's also part of why it it's timeless. Yeah, it's well, it's it's timeless and it's generational, right? So it it has moments where it becomes more relevant to some than others as yeah. the clock turns. Um, my parents are still alive, so I have no idea how it'll play for me the next time. Um, don't have kids, but we did just adopt a dog, so nice. Yeah, the essential elements never change. And this is what we were talking about before. Like the film doesn't change. It's just us. We keep coming back to it from different perspectives. That's a great thing you say about generational films. Because I think that's actually, if I think about all of the films that I like, that's actually the key. Is that I can watch them at different points of my life, whether it's The Lion King, whether it's any of those movies that I mentioned. They're generational. So they're mm. the stories are are so truthful at each stage of life that when you watch them over and over you go oh yeah i see it totally differently than i did when i was you know yeah well i mean even something like the lion king if you're a parent you're going to come at that that early scene differently than you are if you see it as a kid for sure right all of a sudden is when he holds the baby ah I'm not, it's like <laughs> totally different thing if you just you know yeah well i'm yeah. thinking of you know like mufasa's speech about when we die we become the grass and yeah kids don't get it they really don't. I've seen that movie with audiences and the kids are just into the imagery. Yeah. Then, and then when Mufasa dies and, and reappears, spoilers to the Lion King, apologies to listeners, um, that scene at the very end just lands so beautifully uh, because it's been set up and also mystical and all the foolishness just goes away and you're watching a cartoon that somehow... Yeah, you're watching a cartoon animal adaptation of Hamlet and somehow it connects. And it's Hamlet, which is the same thing, right? Where, where, you know, Hamlet does all that growing in that sort of, you know, short period of time, but that's really what it is, is these generational things, right? That's what, that's what keeps us. 
Yeah. And here you have a movie about people in London who are not happy. Um, being slightly less unhappy because they have each other and then really unhappy because they have each other and then finding a kind of grace on the other end of it. And the personal responsibility for our happiness, like what are, what are we willing to do to, to be happy and how much do we, how much are we a victim of the things that have happened to us and how much are we responsible for turning it around or making it better or whatever. And, And I, that really struck me in the film as well. Yeah, and it doesn't have the scene that every other movie with a similar plotline has. There's not a lot of blame. People are willing to accept that they've made these choices, right? Like the, the starting point, and maybe that's the difference between the English version and the American version. Hortense never says, you gave me away. She never attacks her for it. They discuss right. it, but there's no blame. There's no sense that she could have been an entirely different person. It's just, it's the scene you expected, the scene I expected to see as a viewer and it never happened. And maybe I remember asking Lee about this and maybe that's what pissed him off. But the fact that it avoids all the speed bumps of the genre that it's in, because it is a really specific story that we have seen a hundred times over. And the fact that he found a way in that no one else has tried and an execution of it that is probably the best version that it ever could have been. Right. That's that's incredible to me. Watching it again, it it does feel more miraculous than most of his films. I mean, I know how they're all constructed, and I know he works to to shape them, but this one feels like he didn't even try. This one just feels like life is happening right in front of us. And I wonder how much of that, like you know, that moment at the end when uh, when Brenda Blethyn is she's just bawling after she's let everybody know, and then. Hortense is sitting there and she comes up and she hugs her mm-hmm. where I, I was, ex- I would expect her to get up and leave and say, I, I, this is more than I wanted, but I wonder how much of that is Marianne Jean-Baptiste and how much is Hortense yeah. and in her improvisation and all of that stuff, that grace that she brought to the character, how much of that is the actor and like what her, her instinct and her impulse was in that moment. I feel like, or I want to think that Mike Lee would say, what would you do in this moment? And she would say, I would leave. I would go to her. But that's who that's, that's the truth of Marianne coming in and walking over to her in that moment. And so I just, I think that's also part of what I loved so much as an actor is being able to be part of that collaboration and that crafting of the story. I would yeah. have loved to have been a fly on the wall watching that movie. Yeah. I, it really it's a shame that he doesn't document the rehearsals or I'm sure he does. It's a shame he doesn't release them and, and share right. them with people uh, because yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. I think you, the genius of that performance of, of Jean-Baptiste's choice in that scene is that you can see she wants to leave and she's forcing herself to stay just and for to, a little bit. right? But it's- and to be grace, graceful and, and gracious and which is a sign of her class because class is not just about money, right? Exactly. Class is about accepting people for where they are at. And that I think when, when Mike Lee explores class, that's the biggest part of it that he's exploring. What are your obligations to other people? Yeah. How do you make other people feel good? You can be, if you can entertain the queen, but you can also entertain some guy who's just come off the street who has no shoes. That to me is real class, right? Not how much money you have. Yeah, yeah. Standing is so crucial to, I was going to say the English identity. It's obviously just as important in America and in Canada too, because 
the sense that there are different rules for people wherever you are on the economic strata. That's something that British cinema has always been kind of willing to deal with in a sideways fashion. You know, no one ever discusses how much money they have. That's not done and, and you know, peerage and all of those things. They're simply taken as read. But Mike Lee's films are swimming in it. They're all about who has the upper hand over whom. Like Peter Liu is all about where everyone on this this the story of this horrible massacre that happened in, in Manchester in the 19th century, everyone is motivated based on how much money they stand to make or lose from the economic crisis that the film is about. Secrets and Lies just finds a modern version where no one ever talks about it, but yeah, it's the way they carry themselves. It's the way they're, it's the, the tenor of their voice. It's how loud they're willing to be. I don't think Hortense ever raises her voice. She speaks sternly, but she never shouts because she doesn't have to. She's brought up that way. And she thinks before she speaks and she's methodical in the way that she does things. And she's had, she's learned the skill set, right? That's, that's half of, half of that. Mm -hmm. At least. Yeah. And, uh, and Cynthia just has no, she cannot, she cannot take a breath before exploding or whining or crying and it's a, it's a great character, right? I mean, on paper, that's a tremendous role to play because you have to put your entire self into it. And Brenda Blethyn, I, you know, in all the other work I've seen has never even approached it. It's not like uh, other actors who just sort of have that little space that they occupy. And that's why you cast them, the character actor, somebody like Jackie Weaver, who really only does the same thing every time, but finds different ways to modulate it. But you cast her for that part. Brenda Blethyn is a chameleon and she's unrecognizable as herself in this just because she, I, I don't think I've ever seen her be so needy on camera. And by that's the end of it, great way to put it, that's exactly what she is. She's so, so needy. And then you juxtapose her with Hortense who's so actually full mm-hmm. and, and knows that she's a good person and knows that she, she's just got the confidence that, that she's got that real true self confidence and authenticity you put her against um cynthia and then cynthia's daughter too and you're just like it just it's yeah that's what makes it so i just i love the movie and i bawled again when i watched it Uh i did and that's always a sign for me when i'm not looking at other things right like that when i watched that scene with the two of them when they met and I wasn't looking at the time. And then I was, I was like, I bawled. I I was crying. And then I was like, Oh God, when it, when a movie moves you again that way, and you know what's happening and I'm not looking at the cinematography and I'm not looking at what the shot is. And I'm not looking at all of that other stuff. Then you know that you've got something really, really classic. Yeah. It's wonderful. It just, I, I'm I'm mad at myself that I was petty enough that I didn't rewatch it for all the time that I could have been rewatching it, but I'm, kind of glad at the same time because it just got to whack me in the face all over again. But you know what? I think that there's the reason why is because it's, it's such a truthful film, right? And Mm. for the, for the person who's at the helm of that to, to bring out those performances, there has to be a generosity 
right? That's what you're expecting because we're making, I'm making all these leaps about what that set must've been like and how that, that improv must've been and that collaboration, because I just think the only way to get such beautiful, truthful performances would have to come that way. But I don't really know that for sure, because I wasn't the fly on the wall. So I'm expecting that. And then I think that if, if, if that's not what the, the experience is when you meet that person, then you can see why you would be more disappointed yeah. say if you had, you know, met somebody that you had no great expectation of generosity from. Yeah, that's fair. Actually. It's probably my fault. <laughs> Let's... No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that, that I think it's very, very natural that, that it felt more like a slap in the face than, than if it was somebody that you'd be like, well, I, I know that person is this. I would have, ex- I would, I would have felt the exact same way that, that you did. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't really blame myself. I, I, I mean, I, I probably do on some other level. There is a Mike Lee movie in this interaction, I would say. Like there's, there's a yeah, short probably. film about two people being stuck <laughs> talking to each other for 20 minutes that becomes excruciating. I, I'm, maybe I'll make it. That'll show them. There you go. I won't show anybody. <laughs> it's, uh, but yeah, that's it. I, I, I'm inclined to be generous to him because I know how shitty a press day is and how awful it can be for people. It's never okay to, to not, it's never okay to not be kind. That's fair. But I'm trying to find a segue that works for, for Lake Shorts. Um, uh, my husband and I run a short film festival called uh, Lake Shorts, which we're celebrating our 10 year anniversary this year. Um, and we have the inaugural screening in uh, Paris. And I think one of the things that I love about shorts is how in a short period of time, you can tell a complete story. And I think that that's something that Mike Lee does very well with all of those characters that are coming in and out of his films. Each one of those is like a little, a little short story that you could pull into something much larger. Yeah. And if there was, or not, if there was, have you, we had talked about the, the eight minute scene in the diner being effectively a short film of its own. I mean, I think you could start and stop the entire story there and just. If I got that, if I got that scene submitted to Lake Shorts, I, I would give it every possible award because to me that, that scene in itself has a beginning, a middle and an end. And, and I don't know where it's going to go. And it would hold my attention for that full eight minutes or however long. And it's a one or two. There's not even any like coverage or anything on it, but it would be a fantastic short film just in itself. You know, even just taking that guy that shows up who used to own the photography shop, he and he and himself is a, is a little short film, you know? And I think that that's, um, I think for me, that's why I love a night of short films is because, you know, you can go out and if you see a feature, you either love it or you don't, you don't get that two hours back if you don't. But if you go to a night of short films, you're going to see a film that you really love and you're going to see a film that maybe you don't. But I find there's so much more discussion in a night of, in a night of shorts. And I think that's part of the reason why we need more short film festivals. Yeah. I mean, I agree. There's, there's more short work being produced now than ever just because digital tech is allowed for that to happen, right? You don't have to buy film stock. You don't have to have a crew anymore. If you're, if you're talented enough, you can pull it off. And there are plenty of people who aren't talented enough and still trying to pull it off. And I'm seeing emails from them constantly about why isn't their short in a film festival, but that's a different issue. Um, 
but we're seeing <laughs> like we're seeing this explosion of talent and people who have something to say. And yeah, um, I, I'm really I'm I mean also in a reasonably privileged position where I get to watch them in 4K and Atmos if they're available that way on a big screen. And I just love the experience of disappearing into someone's creativity for you know six or eight minutes and then coming yeah. out the other side. Well, and also I think what it affords both emerging and established filmmakers alike is an opportunity to explore. And so to, 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 to figure out things like pacing and to like, one of the things I love about Mike Lee's films and this one in particular is the pacing that the pacing is a little bit slower and not particularly in today's day and age when everything is so fast and it's, it's coming at you so quickly that that slow pacing is amazing, but maybe you want to explore it, but not necessarily in a full feature because there's so much at stake in getting a feature done. But shorts allow people, I think, a real opportunity to explore the craft, right? And to try different things, certainly as an actor, definitely as a writer to go, okay, how does this story land? Do people find this interesting? How do do I want to direct this? Do I want to try it in Mike Lee style or do I want to do it completely different and, you know, have it really, you know, much more... um, uh, steady and staged and all of that stuff. And so I think that, that short films are extremely valuable for that. Yeah. And I'm glad you're making it possible to see them. Ah, thanks. Me too. <laughs> it's a great night. It's a really fun night. Yeah. We always have live entertainment before and after, and, and we really set it up for discussion because the same way that you and I are discussing film right now, Nobody, like for me, if I watch a good film, I want to talk about it with somebody else. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want to talk about that and go like where you say, did you think that Cynthia was raped? And I go, I did see that. And you're like, I didn't see that. To me, that's a great thing. When you're meeting at intermission, you have an intermission and somebody's like, did you think that this happened? I didn't see that at all. I thought it was this. Like that's, that's what film, like film is a communal experience, which is why we're waiting until after COVID so that people can really, really talk the way they're meant to. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that now. Um, the greatest thing about cinema is that 500 people will sit in a room and each one of them will have a slightly different experience from something that is fixed and unchanging. Uh, exactly. Love and it. that we have the, the um, that we want to sit in a dark room with complete strangers, with 500 other strangers, and that that, that can be an electric ride with people that you you don't even know or want to know afterwards like that's it's it's a very rare thing you know it's its own little bit of magic for sure the cinema so as much as we can now watch it in our own screens and in our living rooms and whatever i don't think i don't think the theater is going anywhere god i hope not yeah me too yeah My thanks to Michelle Nolden, who's currently getting ready for the Grand River Shorts edition of her Lake Shorts International Film Festival, which is happening November 12th at the Dominion Telegraph Center in Paris, Ontario. You can find program and ticket information at lakeshorts.ca. Thanks also to Jen Paris. She knows what she did. You can find Michelle on Twitter at NoldenMichelle, all one word, and you can find Secrets and Lies in an excellent special edition from the Criterion Collection. It's also streaming on the Criterion Channel, and in the U.S. it's on HBO Max as well. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I host the Now What podcast every Friday, in addition to writing far too many words about movies and television. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Simcast, S-E-M-Cast, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Watch movies. Stay safe. Wear a mask if you go out. 
get your shot already. I'll see you next time.